Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're here to discuss the offense from that 49ers win. A wonderful win on Christmas night. The best present I could hope for. Probably a lot of fans, too. And here to discuss it with me is Jonas Schaefer. Jonas, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Merry Christmas to you guys. Happy holidays to you and your family. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, great time of year to be thankful for all Maureen does for me, especially after a night game. It really becomes apparent with her up till four in the morning doing notes with me. But I uh, uh, really appreciate that. And I, if she needs, she deserves a call out for this. Jonas, though, you're the the beat reporter for the Baltimore Banner. Yeah. Uh, so I was I was out there in Santa Clara, uh, the appropriately. I, I didn't it didn't hit me until Christmas Day that I would be in a town or in a city that uh, was named that had the name of Santa in it until, until Christmas <laughs> day. And that was a, uh, maybe a Christmas miracle that I even recognized it at all uh, because I'm <laughs> not that quick on the uptake. <laughs> all right. That's good. <laughs> um, uh, and your, your Twitter handle just so people can have it up front here. Uh, yeah. Jonas J O N A S underscore Schaefer S H A F F E R. All right. Very good. Uh, we talked about the path to the number one and number two seed, but it's become a lot simpler. The Ravens win against the Dolphins. They've got the number one seed wrapped up. If they don't win, in all likelihood, it's going to be quite difficult for them because the Dolphins might have nothing to play for. Uh, sorry, the Bills might not have anything to play for in week 18. Um, and and that is a fairly substantial chance they'll be locked into the sixth seed at that point. And uh, and won't have even seeding to play for, so that's uh, uh, unfortunate for the Ravens. That that the chance of Buffalo beating Miami, which seemed like a pretty good chance, isn't really going to help them out. The Ravens could well be if they don't beat um, the Dolphins, they'll be playing for the division title quite likely in Week 18 if the Browns beat the Jets Thursday night. Yeah, we've gone from wondering you know, whether this would be a must win game for the Ravens, you know, after Sundays Hmm. after, excuse me, after the win over the Jaguars because of just how this lined up with the Browns playing before the Ravens to maybe the Ravens have the AFC North title wrapped up uh, by Thursday night. Because again, I think the jets are what seven point underdogs at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's Thursday night. There's a whole lot of variance. You know, you, you, you maybe like the ability of Sauce Gardner and, and that Jets uh, and that Jets defense to take away Amari Cooper. So I guess anything's possible. But you know, it's hard to bet against the the Browns at this point, especially with the, the state of this Jets team. Yeah, uh, the the Browns are rolling. Joe Flacco appears to be just the medicine for them. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, you know, I kind of liken this to the 1970 season. I don't know how much you, you you tap into football history with this, but George Blanda. In 1970, came off the bench for the Raiders to replace Daryl LaMonica 
believe it was five times and led them to four wins and a tie down the stretch, which they were the um, miracle team of that season, had four wins in the last 10 seconds. And uh, Blanda took them all the way to the AFC Championship where they lost in Baltimore to the Colts who went and then won Super Bowl V. I would be perfectly happy if Joe Flacco were cast in the George Blanda role here and came to Baltimore for the AFC Championship and got beat again. I'll even take the same score. It's going to be weird if and when, I shouldn't say and when, if the Ravens get the one seed, the Browns win that wild card game in the four or five spot and they come Mm -hmm. to Baltimore. And then the narrative becomes that this Browns team is a lot like the 2012 Ravens because the 2012 Ravens did not turn it on defensively until the playoffs. And Mm -hmm. this Browns defense is epically good. Um, You know, obviously we are seeing the Joe Flacco on a heater narrative kind of take shape the way it did in 2012 and into the 2013 playoffs. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see just what the, the national narratives for that game would be considering you know, everyone kind of twisting themselves into knots, uh, trying to tie Joe Flacco's current Browns tenure to what he was with the Ravens, especially when he was uh, at his apex. Right. Well, I mean, you know, for all of Joe Flacco's greatness with the Browns, he's got an 85 quarterback rating. And uh, I, I don't think he's not the, he's not the guy you should necessarily fear. But I tell you what, he really looks different. Um, and, and seeing him in another uniform, um, you really realize the arm talent he still has. I mean, he throws he definitely throws a fastball still, uh, and uh, very impressive. And it, I know receivers in Baltimore used to occasionally say that he threw the ball remorselessly hard. He'd break your fingers without <laughs> thinking about it. Didn't they say the same thing about like Aaron Rodgers back in the day? Just see, I, you, you I know, don't know. Better, you better catch it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. It could be. Uh, lots of narrative shifts this week. Uh, these are two of the greatest teams ever to meet in an NFL game, if you believe Devoa, the fourth and fifth greatest teams of the last 40 years, uh, behind three incredibly great teams. The, the 1991 Redskins were number two, and the 1985 Bears were number three, and the 2007 Patriots were number one. Are, are we talking Ravens and 49ers or Ravens and Ravens and 49ers <laughs> are the fourth, fourth and fifth. Yeah, right. Yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, I think. Uh, Going into that game, 49ers were what third all time for I think third and 12. 14 was, yeah, yeah, uh, behind what the 2007 Patriots and the 91 Redskins. Uh, that, that sounds right because the 85 Bears would have been then in the, in the four spot, I guess, because they, they're three yeah. now, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, I would eagerly, I don't know, I, I don't know if I would, would want to write about this game all over again in a Super Bowl rematch. I feel like if the Ravens do indeed make it to the Super Bowl, and obviously that is a long walk from where we currently are right now, uh, I feel like the 49ers are the overwhelming favorite in the NFC. Is a little bit more variance in the mm-hmm. AFC with you know the Patrick Mahomes of it all and the, the Dolphins heating up on defense and the Bills and Browns maybe being mm-hmm. you know the the fly in the ointment for for some you know division champion. Um, but I don't know, as, as I'm sure we'll t- get into when we talk about the game itself, there was you know a lot of interesting plays that went the Ravens' favor and some that didn't. But uh, I don't think that the Ravens could count on turning over Brock Purdy 
four times and maybe should have had six uh if you're just counting on the counting the ball the balls that just dropped knocked off their hands and should have been picked off um it would be interesting to see how that game plays out in vegas where it's a turf field where there's a you know the the speed of both those teams is highlighted a little bit more i don't know if that favors someone like lamar with, with his ability to to turn it on and, and go or if it is more advantageous to you know, Christian McCaffrey, IU, Debo, all those guys. So uh, if and when that matchup materializes again in the Super Bowl, uh, it would be very interesting to see, you know, what the, you know, the the environmental changes to the game itself, how those would kind of affect how we consider the, the tail of the tape. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't look at this 49ers team and really consider them a speed team. Uh, McCafferty is not among the fastest running backs. He has other qualities that make him a good running back. Um, and Ayuk and Debo, while they have some speed, they're they're not. That's not their highlight category. It certainly is not it for Usechek or Kittle. I mean, those guys are are you know big monsters and whatnot. If you look at right. this Miami team, this is the speed team in the in the entire yeah. NFL. Yeah. What is it, like three of the top five at one point, or like I think four of the top five. Uh, recorded speeds of the season were by Dolphins ball carriers at, at, at a certain point. Um, <laughs> I forget if Keaton cracked the top five at any point, uh, but it was like Hill, Mostert, Achan, all, mm-hmm. all in the top five for maybe by the like week ten or something, if not earlier. I mean, it's just absurd, absurd speed. Yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting. It's it's hard for me to understand how they failed so dramatically. But in talking to Daniel Iofusi today on the, on the, on the know your foe show, um, he, mm-hmm. he mentioned some things. He said they've been very inefficient in short yardage, that their offensive line is basically in, in a, a lot of trouble right now. Um, and it, it took him walking me through the injuries on the offensive line. You really feel like, well, maybe the Ravens situation isn't so bad with both offensive <laughs> tackles, you know, having some issues. So. Uh, let's move on a little bit. The offensive tackle rotation, I guess we get into, uh, here. I, I, I don't know if you caught it, but at the beginning of the broadcast video, which you may have not have seen yet, you may be go straight from the game to all 22, but, um, it, they, they, they introduced, uh, Ronnie Stanley with the red to offensive alignment as Ronnie Staley, you know, playing a game out in San Francisco too, is a, a little weird that that would happen, but, uh, uh, they spelled it. What was the, uh, what was the gaff like a year or two ago? What was it? Um, one of the CBS crews or Fox crews that was calling Lamar like Kyler Murray. Do, do, do you remember that? I, I know you, huh. you go to most of, the, yeah. most of the games, but I think there there was a period where like for a full quarter, I think the CBS or Fox play-by-play guy was misidentifying Lamar as another black quarterback. Which yeah, is, that's right. <laughs> that's really bad. You know, the, the famous one in Baltimore is Bruce Cunningham um, calling Joe Flacco Kyle Bowler. Oh, no. over the over the thing and that that didn't go well and then of course things you know got a little bit defensive from there and and uh, uh it was it was difficult but uh but anyway uh, a lot of abuse for that but uh getting back to the OT, ot rotation for a second uh stanley sat out 10 plays for mccary before he left with that concussion when he pulled towards the left sideline and moses sat out the last 17 for falele uh, actually, it was 17 in total. I think it might have been the last 14 or something. He was out um, in the game. Uh, where are you in the Ravens' left tackle, the offensive tackle situation? I'll leave it for answer for 23, and then I'll also maybe what you think the Ravens might do for 24. Yeah, I mean it's it's the kind of sort of Damocles <laughs> hanging over this offense right now, right? It's. Uh, I think just looking at, at your grades, I was higher on them 
than than, than you were for sure. Uh, I, I think my perception of how it went, you know, watching it live and then watching a little bit of the the all twenty two was was more encouraged than than I was certainly um, in relation to that Jaguars game. I, I always come back to this like kind of truism of of playing tackle for Lamar Jackson as quarterback. And this is the thing that, you know, I, I kind of cautioned folks about with Orlando Brown was that when you are blocking for Lamar Jackson, you generally do not have to worry about speed rushes because defensive coordinators are so concerned with, you know, having those edge rushers get pushed too far upfield and, you know, giving Lamar that that breakaway lane that that he needs to get an easy five, eight, 10, 20 yards that, you know, they will go for these cage rushes. They will go for these mush rushes. Um, so if you have someone who's big and strong and sturdy, like, like Orlando was, and, you know, was a little bit uh, laterally challenged, uh, it doesn't really matter. Obviously we, we've now kind of reached that point with, uh, we've reached in, in the opposite point with Ronnie, where uh, on his worst days, he still has that lateral mobility, but he just cannot anchor and, and cannot win the, these bull rushes that he probably knows are coming. So even though he had a rough start, I, I think for the most part, Ronnie was, was pretty good. Um, I, I think, you know, on, on the other side, uh, Morgan Moses was, was pretty good as well. Had a couple of nice, uh, real good blocks uh, in the run game. Um, you know, obviously they can keep Morgan Moses around next year uh, on a relatively team friendly deal. But this has also been a front office that has been pretty, uh, you know, aggressive, I guess, in throwing those young guys out there and making the most of that rookie contract deal. So uh, I guess it's it's tough for me to say whether they are going to open it up and make it an open competition between Moses and Falele next year. Um, I think it's a good sign for, for Moses that like the injuries that he's dealt with this year are upper body and not lower body, which can be great point more degenerative and, 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 you know, more, more worrisome in the long run. If it's just a shoulder and or pec injury for, for Moses. And, you know, obviously you run the risk of re-injury the, the, the longer that you play a game as physical as football, but it's not as worrisome to me as, you know, knee ankle foot stuff. So, you know, if I'm Eric DeGosta, I'm, I'm definitely looking to bring, Morgan Moses back consider you're, you're not paying him anywhere. What a guy like that who's played at his level, I think for the past two years would get on the open market. But I also recognize that, you know, with Lamar's deal shooting up in value every year, you're going to have to be a little bit more judicious in, in your salary cap management. And maybe that means, you know, cutting a guy for uh, just a couple million dollars it, because you trust in the young guys behind him. Um, I, I don't know if, Lele is the kind of fleet-footed guy that is an ideal, uh, you know, plug-and-play guy for the maybe some of the zone running concepts that Todd Monk can favor at Georgia, which I think has to be a consideration. You know, uh, Morgan Moses is, is great in space. It's it's always a pleasure watching him pull and turn up field or or block on a screen. Daniel Fatalele's, you know, packs a heavier punch, but he's certainly a bit more lumbering. And on the so Ronnie, when's side, he going to unpack it? That's what I want to know with Falele in terms of that punch. He just doesn't punch at all as a pass rusher, as a pass blocker. So. <laughs> and, and, and with Stanley, um, like I feel like we're, we're probably headed to a point where, you know, he's he's cognizant of the fact that he has not lived up to 
his contract. He is also cognizant of the fact that if the Ravens were to release him, um, he, he would not get the kind of money that he would be looking for or, or would be owed um, in, in Baltimore, anywhere close to it, just because of those concerns about his knees, because of those concerns about his ankle. Uh, um, I'm a, you know, I think probably as much of a Ronnie proponent as there is in the, in the media because I've gotten to know him. I know how hard he works on his craft. I know how dedicated he is to getting better in the offseason. I mean, even after that game against Jacksonville, you know, he was, uh, was it Jacksonville or was it San Francisco? Uh, I think, Jack- yeah, Jacksonville, he had a really bad game against Josh Allen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I think it was San Francisco then. Well, either way, one of the one of the two. Um, I should be able to, to, to remember this because it happened so recently. Uh, he, he was like hanging out uh, after a lot of the guys had had left the locker room for the team bus and was just you know kind of doing these shadow, you know, kick kick steps, kick slides with Patrick McCarry. You know, each each of those guys kind of coaching the other up about stuff that they'd done wrong, stuff that they needed to improve on. Um, you know, I, I think Ronnie has gotten a bit of a bad rep just because of. The, the long period that he went where he didn't play and his ankle was messed up and, you know, other things were messed up. Um, we've seen him this year, uh, you know, be willing to play through the pain, even if it hasn't been ultimately to the, the betterment of the offense. So I feel like we're headed down a road where the Ravens and Ronnie come together at the negotiating table, you know, reach an agreement about a reduced salary. Maybe you have some, you know, pro bowl uh, benchmarks for him to hit that he can, earn some of that money back. But, you know, Ronnie loves being in Baltimore. Ronnie loves playing with Lamar. Um, I, I think Ronnie, you know, is, is cognizant of the fact that this hasn't been his best year, but he, he's still a, a very fundamentally sound player. I mean, he's not an overwhelming athlete. He's what was an all pro in 2019 at the same size he is right now. Um, so I, I'm optimistic that they could find a, a path forward just because, you know, I don't know who you're going to get at that left tackle spot um, that is going to make sense for you financially. I mean, you know, Patrick McCarry, I don't, I don't think has the the stamina health wise to be an every game starter, nor do I think you just want him out there uh, mm-hmm. considering his limitations as a, as a blocker and, and everything like that. And, you know, if you take a swing on a left tackle in that, you know, 24 to 32 range of the first round, you might get a guy who's who's you know pretty good, but chances are, just like a lot of rookie linemen, there are going to be a lot of really really low really low lows that you have to deal with. So let me toss uh, one I out there. Then. Let me toss something what out there mean? for you because I think there are a couple possibilities. Number one is if you want the two year plan and you save Ronnie, save eight million by cutting Ronnie, you could save you could you could save some money by renegotiating with Ronnie as you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. But but you could save eight million by cutting him. Draft somebody in the in the twenty four to thirty two range. We'll call it if they if they get the one seed. I guess it would be actually twenty five to thirty two, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably even later than that because once they're the one seed, you can't you know and there's losers. It's, it, it it might be twenty six twenty seven is the best they can draft. But anyway, sure. assuming just huge barriers is the great point in terms of getting into the left tackle position. You go into the free agent market; it's going to be prohibitively expensive. If you go into the draft market, if to get a day one starter, you got almost be in the top ten, maybe higher than that. You know, to get it, get a really top left tackle. And if you go, if you go into the 23 to 32 range, you might get somebody who's okay, but you're taking a gamble probably on the quality of play right away. And it might be a two year plan to get a guy who has the right physical traits, but is not quite there yet, even in college as a player. Sure. 
So here's here's the 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 only way I'd see the Ravens getting the total draft capital needed to do this would be just to make a sacrifice at another position. So the one we've been kind of bantying around a little bit is how about tagging and trading Matt Abike? Because I think if you really wanted to look at how you could get a lot of draft capital, I don't see another way. All the other guys who are leaving in free agency, there's no tag and trade possibility that right. brings back any significant capital. And the and the draft capital that gets you back is all 2025 draft capital, which presumably you could trade and move forward a year at a big discount. I don't think the Ravens would be interested in that. On the other hand, Matt Abike has grown into this incredible force. Could you trade him? acquire the draft capital needed and maybe it'd be as high as a you know somewhere between the 15th and 20th pick overall that you get Mm -hmm. in exchange for a player like that it might not be quite that high and then maybe trade both your number ones to move up in the first round into draft a left tackle range yeah uh, i saw you you teased this uh this talking point in in a in a recent podcast were you able to find any analogs for what someone like matabike would fetch in a tag and trade well, there have been a fair number of such trades over the years, like Seymour uh, was traded under similar circumstances. I'm trying to think Seymour was in his fourth year or he's after his fourth year in tag. Khalil Mack comes to mind as a guy who was, who was trading that. But I, I have not gone to any extent to, to, uh, to do this. You, I mean, I think you, know, you start with the positional valuation to begin with, and you look at defensive tackle and how, how high that is right now, how much people are valuing interior pass rush. And I think you'd have to you'd have yeah. to start with that. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure you brought this up. It looks like this was 2009, the the Richard Seymour trade. It was mm-hmm. in exchange for a first round pick in the 2011 NFL draft. So I guess it was maybe not even for the next year, if if this dateline is correct. So it was for a first round pick two years down the road, which is which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I mean. I, I, I think it probably all options are on the table and, you know, every sack that Matt BK collects is <laughs> one more million dollar that you're per, per year. That's probably gonna have to pay him. Um, you know, I feel like, I don't know. I, I, I it's an interesting spot that the Ravens are in because I, I keep coming back to all the young talent that they have paid or will have to pay. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, Eric DaCosta, is you know if he continues to be the guy who, who tries to sign these guys as soon as possible so that you can have that cap flexibility in the long run then you are talking about a potential three three-year run of making roquan smith the highest paid off-ball linebacker in the nfl uh matt just a bk one of the highest paid interior defensive linemen in the nfl and then if you can get a deal done with kyle hamilton probably the highest paid safety in the NFL. And uh, I I know that I am sure that that long-term planning, uh, that notion of long-term planning has crossed Eric Tocasa's mind at some point, because, you know, when when I asked him at the combine, when they were still uncertainty about the Lamar and how, you know, the lack of resolution there was just screwing up their, their whole team building efforts. He was very forthright about, yeah, you know, we have certain contingencies, certain plans and, to have this big piece of the puzzle not in place yet does complicate things. So um, it, it's it's going to be a situation where you're going to have to kill one of your darlings, uh, I suppose. And maybe that means tra- trading Matabike or doing everything you can to to bring him back for, for one more year. And then, you know, trying to keep that defensive 
Super Bowl caliber window open uh, another year. Uh, but it's you know this is the this is the the, the curse of, of great talent. You're going to have to pay it at some point, especially when these young guys hit the end of that four year contract. That's what drafting does. You you basically you have to end up with heartbreaking decisions where you lose a bunch of talent and you know, they're going through that. Patrick Queen's going to go. I don't see any reason um, how he'd be at the top of their priority list, given that, that they haven't really tapped into that weak side linebacker platoon value at all. And they have done it in the past. So I, w- I would say he's likely to go Gino stone. I don't know how much money he's going to make anymore. Um, hasn't had a great second half of the year, a lot of missed tackles. So we don't know, but yeah. any- anyway, getting back to the offensive tackle thing, that's just, there are such barriers to it. And it almost looks like they have to replace two offensive tackles in two years. Better get to it. So whatever they do this year, they have to have at least a developmental tackle in the building. The last developmental tackle, I think we have real questions about whether he's going to ever be a starter. If I'll lately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so really I, I, you know, the Ravens have to, have to start that process ASAP, uh, in my opinion. So I, I, whether they, not, they really want to go all the way towards going for a first round left tackle. Um, you know, I think they at least need to use that end of the first round pick or at worst, the second round pick drafting a two year plan at left tackle. Right. I, I think to your point about maybe the, the, the kind of big swing, that the Ravens would need to get out of that, you know, bottom 25%. So that the, the, the final eight mm-hmm. spots of the first round, I, I would love to be proven wrong just so I, you know, have some new information to consider about air to cost and just how he goes about his draft strategy. But I feel like everything that I know about him, everything that, that I know about the Ravens draft process, I feel like it will be, you know, It'll be once in a blue moon that he trades significant capital to move up in the first round unless it is for a position like quarterback. And obviously Lamar's here for the long term, for the foreseeable future long term. So I feel like that is off the table. But I just think that, you know, everything that the Ravens have shown me, everything that Eric Tacosta has said to us um, about, you know, just the, the kind of fallibility of draft picks and how so sure. much of this is luck it, it would really surprise me that to, to see them do something like you know trade up from number 27 to number 15 to draft an offensive tackle when the odds that you can get you know uh, a, a good offensive tackle at 27 compared to 15 are, are not you know statistically significant they're not enough better. And, and I agree with that. There is a point I want to make about what you just said about the cost is that is that he is underselling his own draft talent whenever he talks about lottery tickets or it's just luck or it's blah, blah, blah. That's bullshit. It's 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 not just luck. It is it is it's be like Phil Ivey saying, look, I got the same chance you did. We both bought a ten thousand dollar entry into the World Series of Poker. Well, we know that he's still got a better chance to, to win the whole thing than I would um, uh, doing the whole thing. So so it's it's interesting. I, I, the point has been made many times. So I don't. I don't need to keep beating on it, but uh, uh, he really undersells it. And the, you know, I've had other people tell me, "Look, the Ravens themselves admit that it's the same people." And I say, "Well, look at the Ravens' history of drafting. They've been consistently excellent." And they go, "It's not. It hasn't even been the same people drafting." And my answer to that is, "Yes, it has." For the Baltimore Ravens, basically, DaCosta and Newsom have been there for the entire run, in terms of of being, uh, you know, pillars of this process. Did. 
Ted Savage, um, Ted Savage, Fred Savage, Fred Savage is the actor, right? Did, did Savage yeah. have some, have some contribution to this? Sure he did. But, uh, right. um, uh, but anyway, I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just kind of remind, I, I, this is I'm, when, when you were talking, uh, Ken, I, I looked up this, the story I wrote in 2022 for the, for the sun before I left for the banner. Um, you know, I just kind of like to do these more high concept things rather than just, I mean, I, I do like, you know, dr- breaking down draft prospects, but this was about kind of why the Ravens are always on the lookout for trades. And, mm-hmm. you know, I talked to a, uh, a guy, uh, Massey from the University of Pennsylvania. What's his name? Uh, Cade Massey, uh, who, who, who professor uh, at UPenn, like I said, wrote a paper called The Loser's Curse, Decision-Making and Market Efficiency in the National Football League Draft, uh, which <laughs> Eric DaCosta apparently called a seminal document. But either way, um, I, I keep coming back to this idea that he talked about in the paper uh, it's a concept introduced by investment strategist and professor Michael J. Maubusen. I might be getting that wrong. Uh, the paradox of skill, which is the idea that in fields combining luck and skill, like the draft, luck becomes increasingly important to determining success, even as skill levels rise. So, you know, just that notion that you can have all this information about a guy's background, 40 time, you know, uh, Wonderlick score, even though Wonderlick doesn't matter anymore. Yep. And what really matters is just, you know, as Eric Tacosta has said, how many lottery tickets do you have? And obviously, you know, you would much rather have those lottery tickets in the in the first round than than the third round. But I I just keep coming back to the idea that like if that document is indeed seminal to Eric Tacosta, then to me that suggests that he will almost never be looking to trade up significantly in the first round um, if, if it means costing him a couple, you know, lottery tickets in the third, fourth, fifth. Well, the, the basis of that is going to be a flatter valuation of draft picks. I basically believe it. So I'm always generally in favor of the Ravens moving down in the draft. But the other thing you said was, unless it's a position like quarterback, there is no other position more like quarterback than left tackle. So it's the, it's the That's most true. like what it's not quarterback, but it's the most like quarterback. Oh, I think, I think probably edge rusher as well, because it's very hard to find, an elite edge rusher outside the first round. Okay, fair enough. But I think you know we've we've had more of that be at the end of the first round where you can still find talent. Uh, you know, there, I, I, there's I just I think it's it's much more difficult to find that quarterback at the end of the first round. It it, it has been done, obviously was done with Lamar Jackson, but uh, yeah. But anyway, the, the the days of Lamar Jackson falling to number thirty two, <laughs> I think, are, are just about over. Yeah, I think it really was. It would take a new style of quarterback that again breaks the mold for that to for that to happen again. Let's keep this moving since I know you're 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 running on a little bit of a, a time delay here. What do the Ravens get from the San Francisco game? So a lot of people talked about the switching narratives. What did they really get out of it? Health, a litmus chest, a, a, a chance to clinch at home in Week Seventeen. Is that the biggest thing they got from that San Francisco game? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think so. Just the, again, if we are projecting this into the playoffs and we are talking about to whom can the most benefits accrue, then I think you're talking about the offensive line, Ronnie Stanley getting healthier, um, you know, taking some wear and tear off of the, you know, guy like Gus Edwards, who's obviously been running hard all year, has been running hard, running hard all his career. You know, Zay Flowers, if he's dealing with his foot injury still, he was, you know, didn't practice today um then you're giving him more time to rest up you're giving odell 
more time to to be healthy. So the the idea that this thing could be done and dusted by Sunday afternoon and the Ravens could, you know, again, head into that week 18 game against Pittsburgh the way that they did their week 17 game uh, against Pittsburgh in 2019, mm-hmm. I think would be, would be a thrilling prospect. And, you know, obviously that, that season, that postseason has scarred some Ravens fans and um, might change the, the way that the Ravens think about how they, would approach a, a scenario like that. But I, I still think that, you know, if the Ravens play that game against the Titans 10 times, they, they, they win at nine. That, that was just such a weird game with bad bounces, you know, coverage bus. Um, I, I remember watching that game from the press box and like, you know, Patrick Ricard, Nick Boyle, Mark Andrews were all in various states of beat up, you know, to the point that none of them were on the field at, at certain for certain stretches of that, of that, you know, late first half, you know, wh- wh- wherever in the second half. And that was just so weird that these guys who were the fulcrums of the offense were just incapable of playing. And uh, if you were telling me that you would rather have those guys play basically what one and a half, two more games, because you are so uncomfortable b- about what happened in 2019, I would just say, <laughs> get over yourself. This is a long season. It's even longer than it was in 2019. Uh, every single player in the NFL uh, would would be craving a break right now, and uh, maybe the Ravens change their you know their practice schedule around so that they're a little bit more uh, you know ready for the the grind of a live action game. But uh, I think every single person in that Ravens organization is hoping that this thing is wrapped up by by four o'clock on on Sunday. Completely agree with you. And and one of the things is as we go into this game, uh, as we go into week 18, if they if they do take care of the Dolphins, is that there's only seven guys they can deactivate roughly, including call ups. So and, and, you know, we could probably name 15 that could benefit from the rest. And, yeah, you could probably have some special teams player on the defense. Daryl Worley can play 102 snaps again if he needs to (laughs) uh, between safety and, and special teams if you really want that to happen. Um, but you, you just, it's just a, a limit to how many guys you can be able to keep off the field. Marcus Williams, you know, another guy we haven't mentioned, but that guy clearly it would benefit from not being on a football field. I mean, he's, he's playing well. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It's just, he still is clearly struggling with that peck. But pop quiz for you, Ken, do, do you remember the, the seven guys who were inactive for that game against the Steelers in 2019? Ooh, that is a difficult one. Uh, I'll go with, uh, do you have the list in front of you? Yep. Marshall Yanda. I'm going to say Lamar Jackson yep. was inactive, but but I'm not even 100% yep. sure he was. Okay. Um, let's see why that's a tough one. Um, Ronnie Stanley? No? Mm-hmm. Three for he, he was inactive? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, Mark Andrews? Yep. Four for four. He was dealing with an ankle injury that he never really right. totally got over um, by the time of that Titans game. Trying to think of who there was on the defense who, at that time, two guys on defense. Okay, yeah. Let me let me get them. Um, I don't, I don't think it was Humphrey. I I don't believe so. Anyway, nope. um, so who the uh, there was a DB Earl, Earl Thomas. Yep he he okay. was listed on the injury report that week with a knee slash hand injury. Okay. Defensive lineman as well. Oh, who would have been the defensive lineman back then? They didn't have a whole lot on the defensive line. Um, and Michael Pierce was 
he left after the 2018 season, so it's not him. They had a whole bunch of rotation of defensive tackles there. I, I don't want to take any more show time. Tell, tell me who the other couple were. Brandon Williams. Oh, that makes sense. On the defensive line. And then Mark Ingram, who was dealing with a minor calf injury. Okay. All right. All right. So memory's not as great as it maybe should be. But, uh, that's, but I, that's pretty I, good. I, <laughs> I don't think I would have gotten those guys. Uh, you're... you're are your doubts? Let's not, let's not. Let's just skip that one here. Um, how important does he, does the organization believe the number one seed is? Uh, I, I think very important. I mean, I think John was was asked about it today. Uh, let, let me bring up that quote. He he said, you know, it's an exciting situation to be in. You get into this time of year, you play yourself into these types of games where you have an opportunity where the game means so much where winning one game brings such a big reward because of what you've done up until this point. And that's an earned thing. And the Dolphins have earned the same thing. So it's that kind of a game, which is to say it's, it's a big game. Um, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, you, you probably aren't too concerned about the, who is it? Is it the Colts who are the, the seven seed currently, if, if the Ravens were to, to fall in that, into that two seven game. But uh, yeah, I mean, for, for if, if the Ravens could, get this thing wrapped up and not have to worry about <laughs> Lamar's MVP candidacy going into to week 18, not have to worry about Alex Highsmith and, and Watt coming off the edge and, and getting to Lamar. And, you know, like we talked about just resting everyone, uh, keeping as many of those cards hidden from whoever that next playoff opponent is. Then uh, I think that would be hugely uh, important to, to, to this, to this franchise. I mean, we even get a chance to talk to a lot of guys today, because most of the the locker room had cleared out by the time that we headed uh, in in there after practice, but I'm sure every single one of them is just salivating at the prospect of of getting that number one seed and and knowing that you know you don't have to worry about you know really having your season be in jeopardy uh, until that divisional round. Yeah. All right. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think the I think the organization is completely behind. I think it's a, basically a few fans and and basically fans that want to be loud about things and. Like I always say, if you put a microphone out in the village square and you put a little sign on it and say, uh, tell us is life fair, you're going to primarily get people who think life's unfair who will go to the microphone. So uh, it's you're, you're, you're just inviting people to to talk in that way. Anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about the offense of this game, really get into it. They were outsnapped um, by Jacksonville, uh, sorry, by the uh, um, uh, 49ers, 68-63, after holding the ball for much of that first half. They really... Uh, kept it there. Some of that's a function of the soft defense, the zone they were playing, the four down football, the short fields the Ravens got of their own. You know, they threw had a one play sure. nine yard and a, and a three play drive after another interception. Um, I, what I liked about it was like they kept the pedal to the floor through three quarters with those seven straight scoring drives. Is as you're watching that unfold. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts about that in terms of just the 49ers defense can't really seem to stop them on any of these drives. Some of them short, but can't really seem to stop. Yeah, very short. It, it, it kind of crept up on me. Just the, the, like, I don't think I realized it until maybe the, until like Jameson Hensley tweeted it after the fourth or fifth scoring drive that there was, that there was this stretch of, of scoring drives in, in a row um, because I don't know if it was overshadowed by the turnovers or just the the the, the kind of weirdness of the game or um, maybe some of the decisions that had led to those scores, like the fact that 
the Ravens finally decided to <laughs> grow a pair and, and go for it on, fourth on a, one, yeah. you know, fourth and one situation was, was pleasing to me as someone who, who likes the, the analytics of, of that. So uh, yeah, it, it was a little bit disorienting to, you know, look at the, 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 the drive log and see that they in fact had scored basically it was every single time from the late what first quarter through the late third quarter um you know obviously the 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 halftime break um made that feeling of momentum a little bit harder to notice because that there was that interregnum there but uh you know credit to the defense for giving the offense the short field and credit to the offense for for moving the ball you know every way that they could and then Credit to Justin Tucker for for coming on and continuing this hot streak that he's on and, and nailing every kick that the that the Ravens asked of him. Yeah, that was it's certainly big. It's good to see him get some of his mojo back after some some trouble with mostly longer kicks earlier this year, but uh, but still missing one. DVOA back in the top five. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. So I I don't know if you saw I had Aaron Chats on this offseason to talk about Devoa him by Devoa being the greatest kicker of all time, but he's he's got the most points added I believe now. And the other guy that was close to him was the chiefs kicker from the eighties and nineties. And I'm trying to remember who that was, but uh, uh, you know, the point was made that the chats was making the point that far and away the best kicker of all time. Yeah. yeah the, the, I, I don't, <laughs> there's so many stories that, that you can do uh, that, that I, I would like to do on Justin Tucker. And maybe if this, this playoff run is a long one and, you know, I run out of stuff to write about. <laughs> I will, I will, I will go back to that well. But uh, he is a uh, one hell of a coffee drinker. Uh, this isn't even like a, you know, him leaning into the bit of of him being a Royal Farms pitch man. Like he he spends serious money on being on having the, like the finest coffee beans, finest coffee machine. Uh, I, I remember doing the, the legwork for a story on Justin Tucker coffee guy. And then I think that that was during one of the seasons where COVID got in the way or injuries made everything fall apart. And there wasn't really a whole lot of what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Weren't really a, lot, a whole lot of openings in the budget for a nice feel-good story about Justin Tucker, but I also did a story on him, I think for The Sun, 
last year where he was coming up on passing on setting the Ravens all time scoring record. And I, I, I went, you know, loaded up my iPad with, with some plays just to kind of take a, a walk down memory lane. And the fascinating thing as I was doing that with him was he had like an almost photographic recall, not just of like the, 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 the score or the circumstances of the kicks, but where the, the hash was, you mm-hmm. know, where he put the ball, the weather. I don't know if this is just something that is natural to him or something that he has earned through film study and just like looking at Probably. all his kicks a hundred times over, but it, it was still, you know, you know, that it's like the, the clip, who was it? Uh, um, the, it, it was like the Sean McVay, uh, viral thing from a couple of years ago where he was able to recall, you know, <laughs> every single play from like his high school career, college career, you know, 2018 random game against the, the 49ers where, uh, you know, y- y- if you could throw any potential memory at him and he would be able to recall it like it happened yesterday. It was just one of those things that uh, <laughs> just kind of sticks with you because of how, how funny and rare it is to, to have a player with that, that level of clarity. Yeah, it is. It is great, but they do have remarkable memories for it. I hope they, that doesn't mean that they don't save video. In Tucker's case, it'll be less of a problem to find his kicks and whatnot. I always feel like offensive linemen really ought to be saving every big block they made, really making a note of when it occurred, <laughs> getting somebody to cut it up for him, because that's going to be the stuff you can you can show your grandchildren someday. And uh, if they're not doing it, it's going to be actually hard to recover. That would be my guess, or hard to assemble it at least. Um, so you might as well do it while you're playing. Uh, okay, talk a little bit more. Three three out of six in the red zone in this game, which is not ideal. They dropped under 60% for the year. Um, the median is 54.7. The Ravens were 44.4 last year, obviously. So still a big improvement, but they dropped down to eighth in the NFL. I guess the good side of that is they're still holding the opponents under 40% in the red zone uh, this year at 38.6. And the 49ers just went two of four. Um, when they got down there as well. Yeah, I think I think we talked about this, the the, the red zone bona fides of, uh, of Todd Munkin, just how at Georgia he was pretty good, but never really great. Um, and, and, you know, Lamar started this year on just an unbelievable heater in the red zone. Yep. He was like, I think his on-target rate, um, like basically going into that game against Pittsburgh on red zone throws was literally 100% according to sports info solutions. So obviously there has been some negative regression there and you know, that the, there's been some questionable play calling uh, at certain spots. So um, as long as this offense can just keep its head above water in the red zone and, you know, do more good than harm, uh, not have a, you know, 2020 bills S disaster where you're, where you're throwing yeah. away a touchdown uh, into a pick six. Uh, I think they should be good just because of how good they are. At all of at all other phases of the game, but but certainly the the, the fall from well, like first or second in the NFL to to eighth um, means that you're you know at a first stretch there probably closer to, to league average uh, or if not if not worse. Um, so I guess that is something to to kind of keep an eye on as we head into these final two games. Yeah. 
Uh, series success rate is the other thing I like to look at. That's the the percentage of first downs that are turned into first downs or touchdowns subsequently. So it's every single first down is a new starting point. Uh, 23 of 29 in this game, 79.3%. That's right up there, by the way, with the 2019 Ravens. Um, and it's something that um, if they could continue at this kind of level would be fantastic. But the league leaders for the season are – um, Miami, Kansas City, San Francisco, probably in some order still are in the 75 to 77% range. Um, it's actually a fairly narrow band that all teams are in. Uh, you really have to be a terrible offense to be down in the low 60s. Um, it can be done. You know, the Jets probably are, are, are there, maybe even a little bit below, but, but, it's, but it's really unusual. And, and almost every team is between about 63 and 71%. If you if you look at that uh, uh, group, but anyway, they uh, uh, they held the 49ers to 67.7 in this game, which is outstanding um, defensively. And I thought that was one of the things. Obviously, they gave gave up a lot of big plays to the 49ers. But they also ended five drives with turnovers, and every one of those is obviously a series loss as well. Yeah, the in- interesting fact about the Ravens defense and, and the 49ers offense and the explosiveness <laughs> listen to the athletics NFL football podcast, which good, great listen. If you're just a fan of the league, uh, Nate Tice, Robert Mays do a great job. They said that in recapping this game, the 49ers had, they finished with the exact same explosive rate, which is like, I think 16.1, 16.2 thereabouts that they had for the entire season going into today. So it, it wasn't like, this 49ers offense wasn't explosive. It was just everything around those explosive plays. It was, was implosive. Worth, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that really is that really was the case exactly. I mean, they, you know, they they ran the ball very effectively. They passed the ball for way more than anybody else has. Um, maybe a couple teams have have done better versus the Ravens this season, but in terms of yards per pass, but it was it was those interceptions, darn it, that, that just changed everything. Uh, we talked about the Ravens in there and the fourth down attempt, only 26 runs in this game. I thought one of the interesting things, especially coming into a week where they're going to face Vic Fangio as head coach is with the second to last run, actually the last run in anger of the entire football game. Uh, Gus Edwards ran for 13 yards to put the Ravens up to 103 for the yeah. season. Then he took an NRM minus one on the final play, a kneel from, from Jackson uh, to, to drop it back in the yard. But now they go into face Vic Fangio with 32 in a row and uh, alive after his uh, implosion at the podium the last time around. Gosh, yeah. It, I, I wonder, I don't think it'll be me. I don't think it'll be me who, who asked John Harbaugh <laughs> about whether he's buried the hatchet with, with, with Vic, Vic Fangio, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to be an interesting game because, uh, you know, obviously I know you have a, a lot of smart listeners. You probably know about the Fangio style, but if you are playing with these two high sets, uh, then you are inviting teams to run the ball. And, uh, you know, I haven't watched a whole lot of Dolphins games this year just because of how many have overlapped with Ravens, but it seems like they've are doing a pretty good job of uh, being able to come up the works as a run defense, despite playing with those light boxes and, the, you know, I think probably my most persistent frustration or criticism of Todd Munkin is just not running into light boxes because when it's been Lamar and Keaton Mitchell, especially, uh, they have just been lights out. And, um, you know, obviously, maybe you attribute some of that to just the empowerment of Lamar as a quarterback and as the pre-snap commander, general, whatever you want to call it, and, you know, calling the shots more and throwing more RPOs. But I, I do think at a certain point, you know, just like we saw with that Jaguars game, you know, the, this rushing offense, um, 
is good enough in spots to, to really just wear teams down and and make them pay for the, these two high setups. So uh, if Vic Fangio again dares the Ravens to 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 run the ball, um, if I were Todd Munkin and Lamar Jackson, I would take them up on that dare because this is a a Dolphins pass rush that is. I think second the NFL in sacks behind only the Ravens and uh, they're getting after it. And uh, I think the, you know, obviously not really breaking any news here that the best way to slow a pass rush is, is with a, with a, with a running game. And even though Keaton Mitchell is no longer with us, <laughs> I still think the Ravens have to be bold about, you know, going to that design run game in, in certain spots. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very well taken point. The Ravens have run the ball more than any other team in the league, but a lot of that is run because they win running, where they're grinding right. out fourth quarter games with Ricard and and, and Gus Edwards. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I would agree that that this is this is a first quarter running game. A um, it, it, the only thing I, I I really don't like to do is give up a lot of the scripted plays. Obviously, you still want to have your scripted plays, um, I, and I guess there's no reason why you can't use them into the second quarter. You know, it, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, if, if you have 15 plays, you you really think will work against Miami that are primarily pass plays, but you also have your bread and butter run plays to mix in there. There's no reason why you can't can't save those, and then eventually you do run out of scripted plays at some point during the game. But uh, I, I do want them to, you know, obviously maximize the points they score um, on drives where they have scripted plays. I guess would be the better way to to, to say it. Um, and the Ravens have been pretty effective at that this year. Haven't haven't gotten out of the gate fast every single time, but they've hardly ever trailed. So you know they've basically been scoring before the opponent in most games. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a story maybe a month or two ago, uh, and uh, just basically about how, how this is a Ravens team that that almost never travels. Uh, maybe when you're when you're talking, I can go to True Media and look it up. But uh, last time I checked, they were like second or third all time and the fewest minutes trailed since since 2000. Um, and a lot of that is because they outscore everyone in the first quarter, outscore everyone in the second quarter, outscore everyone in the third, and then the fourth is where things get a little bit hairy. But yeah, I mean, more often than not, they are shutting teams out in, in that opening 15 minutes and getting at least one touchdown. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Lamar's game. Um, you know, one of the interesting things... I was, I thought, and maybe you have the information available to you on SIS or on some other website, that the 49ers were known for doing very few non-four-man rushes. That's certainly the way it was written up in the media yeah. in certain ways uh, before. 43% five-plus in this game against Lamar. So that, at least, was a different tack on going after Lamar. And, and uh, uh, it, was, it was odd. Uh, you know, he threw the ball 14 times in such situations. He's always so sacked twice. 5.6 yards per play on those plays. Um, you know, obviously that that was if you hold Lamar Jackson at 5.6 points per play, you probably have a pretty good chance to beat him. You know, you, you, especially if you're San Francisco and you're going to roll up, so you, you you expect to score some points in a game. But I was very surprised they blitzed as often as they did. Me too. Me, me too. Um, especially because you, you would think that with the matchups favoring them on the edges that they would have taken their chances. I mean, obviously Hargrave wasn't a hundred percent. So, so maybe they felt like they needed some more oomph up the middle um, and not having Armstead definitely a loss to their pass rush. That that, that would also be a, uh, a wrinkle to consider in, in the matchup. Just, you know, if he can get over that plantar fasciitis, if Hargrave can be the guy he was in Philly last year, then that is a radically different pass rush. But yeah, I was, I was not expecting, San Francisco to block to, to blitz, excuse me, as much as they did. 
especially in that first quarter, especially in that second quarter. Uh, I mean, it, it's been, I don't want to, I don't want to say frustrating to, to, to be, to watch Lamar be inconsistent against the blitz because it's been a different kind of blitz than he struggled with in the past. This isn't like the old cover zero experience from a couple of years ago. He, he has been very hit or miss, I, I would say, against the, the the blitz this season. You think of like the Detroit game where the Lions really came after him and he just chewed them up and spit them Destroyed out. Destroyed pressure. Yeah. Other times, other times he, he's, it's been the way to unbother him just to get him into these you know, second and longs, third and longs come after him, you know, blitz with integrity so that there's not really a whole lot of escape pass. And, you know, just just trust that, you know, when he tries to throw that slot fade that he's going to miss or, or that you're going to have, you know, good enough coverage underneath to, to take care of stuff, um, you know, and, and keep it from being a big score. So it, it surprised me uh, to see him finish as efficiently as he did against the blitz because it seemed like at least in that first half, like the 49ers had really struck on something as a way to, to kind of keep this offense off balance. Yeah. The, the uh, uh, four man rush, by the way, 21 for 155 in this game, 7.4 yards per play. He didn't have any turnovers in the game, obviously, but he also wasn't sacked with a four man rush. They didn't rush three even once the entire game, but uh, yeah, they came out swinging. It's actually fairly consistent. Just looking at my score sheet here throughout the game in terms of using, using five and six and even seven, um throughout it looks but uh but you're right they they learned early that they could do it it wasn't an, an adaptation that they uh they changed in the second half to go to a, a blitz at that point and uh uh they, they they thought about this going in yeah yeah and and to your point ken uh, again i assume that this includes the week 16 games but on pro football reference which is obviously has its own stats mm-hmm. different from like sis or pff or true media 49ers are third to last in the NFL in blitz rate at 18.1%. So okay. definitely it, a, a step up in the aggressiveness. Could be could be a definitional thing there, but that's 25 percentage points below where they were in this game, obviously, that uh, they do that. And that right. If that includes the Week 16 games, they were lower than that even going in. So they might have been you know 16% sure. going in. Yeah, uh, 3.11 time to throw in this game. Average for the season is up to 2.96. It's still a little lower. I believe than it was in 2019. So, um, part of being a pocket passer speeds up the the time at which you throw the pass. With the, the, just the fact that you're not rolling, um, you know, which which creates additional time there. Uh, now Jackson has moved around the pocket with great facility. We I, I don't think I think we'd agree on that. But um, I, do you think? I, I mean, seeing all the great plays he's made this year on an extended basis. Do you think there's not a reason to even encourage that extension with some other game planning element or schematic element? How do you mean? Okay, so um, extra chip blocks with a late leak out. Um, uh, uh, you know the 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 desire to leave the pocket or something or at 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 some point extending plays the way they have in the past by creating you know a white picket fence along the line of scrimmage, uh, picket fence more right. a line of scrimmage let's, let's say to the right <laughs> where where he would uh, you know have an additional opportunity to to, to throw that sort of thing. Uh, I just there, there's a, they have a lot of ways they can do it. Um, what they've what they've seemed to have gone away from, which I'm really happy about, by the way, is as many naked boots because I don't think the naked boot works with the mobile quarterback. I think the the backside edge defender is too focused in on right. Lamar when it's Lamar as opposed to Joe Flacco when it's 
you know, a non-mobile quarterback. Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess, you know, I, I would always like to see Lamar, you know, have those, those check down options available, whether it's in the flat or just in the, you know, the short distance of, you know, just like kind of leaking out over the middle. Obviously you don't really see a whole lot of Ravens running backs running those angle routes, those Texas routes that you would get from a Christian McCaffrey or from, you know, like a Jimmy or Gibbs or, or someone like that. So those running backs, unless they're getting screens are always going to be what seems like tertiary options in the, in the receiving game. Um, you know, the, the, I forget if this was ever uttered by Greg Roman, but the, the, the notion of Lamar Jackson dropbacks in that offense were, was like that he is the check down because yes, you know, if, if you put, if you put Gus Edwards in the flat, uh, you would much rather have Gus Edwards turn into a blocker than just throw it to Gus Edwards, nothing against Gus Edwards, but if he can be the, the lead blocker for Lamar, um, then, then, you know, you're, you're cooking with gas. So, uh, it's, it's interesting to see the ways in which Lamar's changed as a play extender and the ways in which he's not, I mean, when we got to this subject, I was actually going to kind of turn the tables on you, Ken, and, and, and ask, because I did a story a couple of weeks ago about like Lamar as a scrambler and mm-hmm. it was, and maybe things have changed statistically. Um, but it was interesting that for as much as the national narrative and I guess local narrative as well has focused on like how patient he's been and how, how in control of the pocket he's been that he, when I wrote the story a couple of weeks ago, was scrambling at an all-time rate. <laughs> like he, he never scrambled more than, than he than he had uh, in the like thirteen or fourteen weeks of the season uh, at the point that, that I wrote the story. And so, he, and notably, his scrambling efficiency in terms of like EPA per scramble was also way down from what it was in 2019. So it, it was very kind of confusing to me to wrap my head around the idea that yes, he does seem more in control of the pocket. But are we just fixating on these big, splashy plays that we like to think about and point to, oh, Lamar's evolution, when in fact, he, he is actually uh, as scramble-happy as ever before, if not even more scramble-happy than than at any point in his career. Yeah, it, let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So 2019 went 41 for 430 as a scrambler. So leaving the pocket um, on a non-designed run, that would be on, on, on a pass play. In 2023, he's got 60 scrambles for 395. So right there, it's it's more scrambles for fewer yards. Uh, so I, I would I, I would completely agree with that with the notion that he hasn't been as effective a scrambler. Now, they, there may be something about that in terms of the design of the offense that he's being put in positions where he's less likely to succeed as a scrambler, but because of the fact he's staying in the pocket to start with. Whereas if you roll right, you may be in a, in a situation where you're in a better position to scramble. Couldn't say definitively that was the case. You see, I like a lot of the things about leaving a pocket and, you know, finding a, finding lack of integrity in the pocket and, and, uh, and leaving that and, and, uh, you know, potentially not having eyes on you if it's man defense or even in zone, I, I guess you, 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 you know, you still have to beat a man or beat two men, or you have an opportunities to 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 make yardage. But the point, the point being that that um, I can't say definitively between you know the Roman offense 
and the Monken offense, if one of him is of, of the if, if the offense itself is putting him at a disadvantage in terms of scrambling. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's also just the I don't want to call it the elephant in the room because it's <laughs> what an elephant it is, but obviously Lamar is not as fast as, as he used to be, or he's not choosing to be as as uh fifth gear Lamar Jackson as yeah. as he, he once was, which is fine because he can still bob and weave and make guys as athletic as Fred Warner just look totally clueless in the open field like he did on Monday night. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is just, you know, when, when I did the the story, which was, I have it right in front of me, uh, January 13th, so two weeks ago today, you know, this was 12.5 scramble rate, which is higher than his previous high in 2020, which was 11.5%. Yards per scramble, uh, and this is all true media, I believe, was six yards per scramble. The high was 2019, 10.4. Yep. And then EPA per scramble, which, you know, the as Todd Munkin likes to say, the, sure. the best play in the Ravens offense is the second play, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the scramble play. Even that, you know, 0.14, which is like a solid to good result for an offense, that is like half as efficient as Lamar's previous low of EPA per scramble, which was 0.26 in 2021. So um, again, let's take a look know, at maybe, that for a second. 0.14. These, these are run plays. I just want to point this out. There's only three teams yeah. in the entire National Football League who have a zero or better EPA per play on the run, the Ravens being Crazy. one of them. They might be second or they might be first. I forget which. Um, the, the Miami Dolphins, what do you think their EPA is per run play? All the speed, you know, Devon, Achan, and uh, and Mostert, the kind of years they've had, Mostert's up at 4.8 yards per carry, and Achan is close to eight, not quite anymore. Their overall EPA, anyway, I won't quiz you on this, but their overall EPA per play is minus 0.12. I was shocked by that. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to Dan about it. He said it's all inefficiency. It's they're they're not converting third downs. They don't have any power run game. They, they can't put anybody on the wow. field who can grind out. A, you know, it's just, you know, how on earth can, can can how on earth can running backs have any value in an NFL where you know only three teams can run the ball for a positive EPA and every quarterback of any salt is a is a significant positive number in terms of EPA meaning you know point one or or higher. It's tough. <laughs> I feel bad for running backs. I don't, I don't know what that what what else to add. Um, but but yeah, I mean. It, on a structural level, I feel, you know, I think there have been more five-man protections, obviously, than than there were mm-hmm. under Rick Roman, which theoretically would give Lamar, you know, I guess more guys to occupy defenders, which would mean that there's more lanes to scramble. And on the other side, if there are fewer fewer blockers uh, protecting him, then he has more cause to to leave the pocket because Ronnie Stanley's getting beat or John Simpson's getting beat. And obviously, you know, he's got nowhere to go, but, uh, but outside the pocket. So uh, maybe it is not, you know, maybe, maybe it is just a factor of Lamar scrambling more or scrambling as much as he ever has because of, you know, his environment rather than um, any natural compulsion to, to, you know, be the guy that we think he actually is. All right, let's move on and talk about some other elements of the offense here. And I'm sorry, we're way behind on time, Jonas. I hope I'm not going to keep you up too late here tonight. Nope. I really want to want to keep going. Uh, another shift in the backfield um, in terms of plays. And the one I was a little surprised at is the complete absence of Josh Gordon, who 
Wait, Josh Gordon, that's not right. Melvin Gordon. No, nope, <laughs> thank goodness we don't have Josh Gordon. <laughs> He'd already be suspended, I'm sure. But but uh, Hill and Gus got 100% of the carries here. And uh, Hill's doing a great job pass blocking. Just absolutely am loving how they use him there. And I wanted to get your take on, on just how ironic this has become that Hill – the relatively small guy, muscular, but 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 relatively smaller back, much you know, fifty pounds lighter than than Gus Edwards, roughly, maybe not quite, um, is the great pass blocker. And Edwards, who's the much bigger, heavier guy, can't pass block at, at really nearly as well, but is a much better receiving threat despite the lack of speed. And most of that coming on these weird extended plays where he finds space uh, <laughs> for Lamar and at the thirty nine and the eighty. We're both that, and they, they've been the major contributors to his 13.8 yards per target this year. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it other than, well, I'm, I don't want to say small sample size for, for yeah. pass blocking just because we, we've seen enough of it to, to know that Justice Hill is, is definitely Mr. Reliable there. I mean, he was playing a lot of third down snaps even even last year, if my memory is is correct. Yes. So uh, I guess just it's just technique. I mean, I, I don't know. If it's a matter of leverage and, you know, Gus, Gus Edwards, you know, being a relatively upright runner, uh, both as a receiver <laughs> and as a ball carrier, um, if it's if it's tough for him to get into that spot where he needs to be to take on these these guys who are, you know, six foot one, six foot two blitzers or, or, or whatever. But it's definitely not what you would expect from from the make of the man that, that Justice Hill would be the guy who packs a punch as a, as a pass blocker, but maybe it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a psychological thing in some ways where these big hulking edge rushers or off ball linebackers are, you know, coming up the a gap and they see just sell and they feel like they can just run him over because he is a, a smaller fella. And you know, he just, he surprises them every time. Maybe it's a situation where you have to learn your lesson once or twice before you actually figure out there's a, there's another better way to, for me to handle this. Yeah. Uh, the Ravens did use, uh, you mentioned the set and chip blocker kind of uh, number of people they're, they're leaving in per play and oct- to occupy linemen. I think you're talking about, maybe you're talking about occupy defensive backs because both are legitimate points, but uh, 0.65 per play in this game, they use 15 set and nine chip blocks. I think they did. Uh, that's a fairly high number. They're doing, you know, you only get five eligible receivers per play. And when you're using 0.65 of them to some degree and limiting with the routes they can run the 15 sets, they can't, they can't run any route or they, they haven't run any route by definition. And the nine chips, they are limited in terms of what routes they can run. Cause you know, they've, they've got to run shorter routes or routes that release later or what it might be. Um, right. It's, it's a fairly significant um, contribution of the, about 13% in this game of the, of the total eligible receivers that they're disadvantaging in some way. Yeah, and it seemed pretty effective. I mean, there were a lot of <laughs> like chip blocks that were kind of made you straighten your back and say, "Whoa!" Um, uh, they, they did a great job with Bosa. They, they did a great job with 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 Chase Young. Maybe uh, you know, as we kind of go to the offensive line, that was something that we we didn't really pay total respect to. Um, maybe we uh, are giving the offensive linemen. Or not, not we, but maybe the 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 non Ken Kens of the the Ravens uh, media group were uh, giving them more credit than they deserve because of all the chip blocks and all the help that they got in in keeping that pocket uh, as clean as it seemed like at times on on Monday night. So 
you know, you got to do what you got to do at this point. Keeping Lamar healthy is, is priority number one. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if it, they step it up anymore or, or keep it at that same level of chip help because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, this is a, a really, really fierce Dolphins pass rush, even without Jalen Phillips out there. Yeah. I, I actually skipped over it in the interest of time here. It's in it. It'll be in the offensive line article, folks. Want to, but thirty-two percent ample time and space is pretty pretty damn good um, by today's standards. Yeah. Uh, and and it was against the 49ers who were who were blitzing a fair amount. And I, so I think it's an excellent number. And Lamar had nine point six yards per play on those throws. He was also good under pressure in this game at four point six yards per play, where a, a, a normal standard might be you know three three and a half something like that, and five point seven yards per play when the ball was out quick. The big number, and I, I, I know you might have missed it in, in terms of my reporting of it, the writing of it, but the big number for the 49ers, so they threw the ball 50 times. They got a 66% pressure rate, the Ravens did. So 33 pressures yeah. on 50 plays. And usually the offsetting strategy to that is to try and get the ball out quickly. Just go side, side, side. And and that's what the 40, I think of the 49ers offense is that's their wheelhouse, you know, yards after the catch, catch, throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's, that's the Brock party point guard offense in a lot of ways. They didn't do it. They, they just, for whatever reason, they, they would not do it. And they, they only threw seven times where the ball was out quickly before pressure could develop. And uh, Ravens, you know, obviously did a remarkable job with that in this game. And it was, it was almost all four zero pressure. Um, yeah, I know there was one national guy who was trying to say it was a lot of different looks on pass rush and what it really wasn't. It was a bunch of four zero pressure. And they, you know, I, my defensive score sheet looks like pressure, 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 pressure for like seven and eight consecutive plays on those last couple drives. It was just, and it's all four zero. It's, it's, you know, this, what you see is what you get. Yeah. Yeah. And that, 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 you know, that is the, the weakness, uh, I guess, of this, of this 49ers offense, especially if, you can't have that run pass balance that destabilizes a defense if you don't know what's coming, if you can't, you know, rely on those outside pitches and tosses and whatever to to, to kind of minimize the to to minimize the, the weaknesses of, of that offensive line. Then we saw on, on Monday night just how they can be kind of exposed because obviously Trent Williams is a great player. He mm-hmm. unfortunately got hurt dealing with a groin injury. Um but other than Feliciano as well, I mean, I don't think any of those guys up front were, were all that highly rated by PFF. And it hadn't really mattered because, you know, Brock Purdy knew where, knew where to go with the ball or Kyle Shanahan knew how to put him in positions to succeed. Obviously, they were, you know, like the Ravens, the beneficiaries of being a lot of game scripts where they could just run on teams and and not really have to, you know, throw the ball all over the yard to come back. But um, if I'm a 49ers fan, I'm definitely feeling a lot less optimistic about my offensive line and you know their uh, you know i guess that their ability to help me lead a comeback because what we saw on monday night was not encouraging in the least right i i would agree and i i I'd even say with trent williams i know he's he was kind of playing hurt maybe in that first half but i think he played about the first half 30 snaps roughly he was getting pretty much used like a sock puppet before he left the game. So it's, it, it wasn't like he was particularly effective. I mean, honestly, that one of the reasons he came right. out was he was ineffective. And then the, the McKivitz right. uh, has got every Ravens highlight you know, on, on the second half in his, in his uh, film to look at. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's, let's look at maybe one more thing before we let's let's look maybe at, at the Mark Andrews absence and, and who's kind of filling in for him a little bit. Um, likely now 23 targets for 249 in the last three games has been terrific. Is, what is it about Likely's game 
that you uh, think is, why has it been so successful? And we did have one guy ask, a, ask a, actually two people ask a male guy questions is, if Mark Andrews does return, and maybe you could speak to that a little bit, how will Monken adapt to having both of these guys in the offense at once, or, or how will he maximize them both? I didn't look into the numbers when they were on the field together this year, but I, that was their functionality together was one of my kind of subplots for the season because when you think of when you think of last year and you think of those Isaiah likely breakout games, they were when Mark Andrews was limited or was injured and and absent. Um, like their their EPA per play when only Andrews was on the field was great. Their EPA per play when only Likely was on the field was great. But when they were on the field together, for some reason, uh, Greg Roman and that coaching staff just could not make it work. And I, I don't recall, and maybe you you know have some recollection of just how productive they they have been in twelve personnel or even twenty two personnel this year when when it has been those two guys together, but. I don't get the sense just based on how much 11 personnel they, they were using when Mark Andrews was still healthy, that it was, you know, the kind of death star that it was back in 2019 or even 2020. Um, With Boyle and Andrews. Again, yeah. I just, yeah uh, I, I just think that, be, you know, their, their skill sets, I don't want to call them redundant because how they go about being productive is very different. You know, Mark is the the guy up the seam. Isaiah is, is more of the guy who's making stuff happen after the catch. He's got a little bit more shiftiness. Um, you know, it's been interesting to see him use as kind of a, a split zone blocker, um, not, not only in the run game, but also, uh, you know, to kind of help set things up uh, off play action, which is something that they never did with Mark because he doesn't have that kind of lateral mobility or that lateral juice. So it's going to be interesting if and when Mark comes back, you know, what that would look like. Obviously, you know, I feel for a player like Mark if and when he does come back because chances are he won't be 100%. And you have this expectation that it's you know, just like a Madden game where as soon as a, a guy is healthy enough to come back, he's back at full strength. Well, that's probably not going to be the case for Mark. Um, you know, maybe if the Ravens are good enough for long enough and smart enough with Mark Andrews' body, then he could be pretty close to 100% by like a Super Bowl. But again, John Harbaugh hasn't given us a timetable for when that comeback would be. He, he told us today that he is on schedule, maybe even had a schedule. <laughs> for what? Don't ask, me, don't, ask me what, don't ask me what that timetable is because John Harbaugh has not given us uh, a single scrap of information about when that return date might be. So the the a couple of points. First of all, thanks, imaginary internet guy and Angela of eighty five for the question about about how those guys would play together. But you make a great point that if Andrews does come back and he's not a hundred percent, but he's still valuable to the Ravens, but because of some things he can do, probably a reasonable thing is for him to be on a pitch count. So they're sharing more of those single tight end. Um, 11 personnel situations. And then I think likely has established himself as a very viable target. And, you know, a guy hopefully who's earned a lot of Lamar's trust, I think, during their, during the uh, Andrew's time away. Yeah. I mean, to see him be, you know, the, the first read on that or first or second read on that, uh, that play that that ended with him, you know, giving the Heisman to the guy was, was impressive. Um, you know, you, you want to see more throws like that, you know, in rhythm rather than just Lamar having to bounce things out of structure and freelance and, and find 
Isaiah like like he did uh, in the previous game against Jacksonville. Um, you know, I forget how many training camp practices you were at, Ken, but again, for like the second straight training camp, it felt like Isaiah likely was more targeted <laughs> than Mark Andrews. Mark, Mark always kind of, you know, has to find his way in camp a little bit. He always has to you know, kind of get his feet underneath him. And then by the time, uh, you know, the regular season rolls around, he's good to go. Obviously, that wasn't the case this year because he was dealing with, I forget what exactly that injury was that kept him out of week one, but, you know, that, that chemistry between Lamar and Isaiah has, has always been there. They're, you know, they're good friends. They I think have a lot of the, the you know, same kind of sense of humor. And I think that that shows on the field with, with just how implicitly they trust one another. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully that's uh, that'll go on. There's only one other receiver that I really want to talk about. We can talk about the others with the individual play, but flowers, um, has been utilization has been drastically changed in terms of what's happened. He's had 33 targets, 21 catches and 164 yards, which doesn't seem terrible necessarily until you realize it's five yards per target, 5.0. Yeah. 5.0 is what Chad. No, who's the, the Bengals receiver who just re- retired. Um, oh, just didn't go. <laughs> no. no, not I want, I want to say Chad Johnson, but it's not him. It's the, it's the other one who came after Chad Johnson. <laughs> We just retired. Oh well, whatever. Five point oh yards per target is terrible. Y- you know what? You know who I mean. I- I'll look it up. Uh, I can't find it. <laughs> a lot of that's a that's like a good thing. We're, we're so yeah. desperate to, to to get this. Uh, AJ Green is who I mean. Uh, but gotcha. but last last year in his last year with with Cincinnati was at at uh, 5.0 yards per target. But anyway, um, Flowers, it's there's obviously a big change in usage. They, he did get free on that nine yard TD, which I thought was terrific. But but he's been mm-hmm. running so many short routes. And it reminds me a lot of what happened to Hollywood Brown at the end of his tenure um, in Baltimore when Tyler Huntley was throwing him the football. The ball had to come out quickly, and you know he's ended up being a, a much less productive receiver because of it. Yeah, I, I guess the the way to maybe reframe that production is like if you are discouraged about the run game production from Monday night, if you think of like the, the volume of RPOs that, that Lamar fed guys like Zay as basically just extended handoffs, then yep. you can simultaneously feel better about the run game and the passing game uh, or, or Zay's wide receiver production because obviously you know you want to see him you know rip one of those off like he did against Cincinnati only to have it called back because of the penalty and I think one of these one of these days he will rip off another one of those off because he is just so slippery and, and hard to bring down but um yeah I mean if Lamar feels the pressure like he did on Monday and, and he has the option of you know having those sight adjusts and, and throwing those RPOs and those smoke screens and, and Zay is the, the guy that he's looking at, then obviously you are probably not going to have the 10 to 15 yard uh, per target games that, you know, maybe you were expecting for, for Zay considering how impressively he performed as a downfield target, especially in that first game against Cincinnati where, you know, he cut probably the, you know, Lamar's best throw all year for that 50 yard catch or whatever it was. So um, when we've asked Todd Munkin about Zay and, you know, why he hasn't been more of a downfield target. Todd's been, I think, very delicate in talking about how there have been plays for Zay to be the downfield target, but that it hasn't come together, suggesting that either the pass protection hasn't been there or Lamar hasn't felt comfortable, hasn't felt comfortable enough 
to, to look for him or both. So, um, you know, he has been running a lot of downfield routes. Uh, you know, I remember looking at the next gen stats data, I think his, his, you know, his share of downfield routes was maybe number one, maybe number two among Ravens wide receivers, but just the, the target share hasn't been there. And obviously if he's not going to be an intermediate type of guy, then that means that he's either getting the occasional deep ball. And with Lamar recently, it's been a lot of inaccurate deep balls or those short throws. And obviously those short throws uh, do not lend themselves to a, a whole lot of, uh, you know, a whole, a whole lot of yards just in terms of overall production. Yeah. All right. Jonas, always a pleasure. We're way over time here. So I want to want to uh, close out for the, the first segment here, but uh, tell folks where they can find your work online. Yeah, uh, just uh, the BaltimoreBanner.com uh, slash sports and all our stuff is there. Uh, just uh, follow me on Twitter and click on the links that I put out. <laughs> One dollar <laughs> for six months. There you go. All right. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, hit me up. You know by now. DMs are always open on Twitter. I'll get back to you very quickly. If you have an idea, I'd like to talk through it to you. Find something that be done in about 15 to 20 minutes. And we can put out some less intimidating content for people who'd like something shorter and would, uh, you know, that would facilitate them getting interested in film study content. But that's what I'm looking for. Jonas, thanks again for coming on. Of course, Ken. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.